0: He had no recollection of what happened to the victims, in, in terms of whether they, they died or not. It was, he, he said, it, it, was, it was like a theatre, like the curtains opening at the start of a play.
1: For the very first time, the greatest minds in criminology have come together to dissect the psyches of some of the world's most prolific serial killers. These forensic psychiatrists, psychologists and pathologists have an incredible depth of knowledge and often first-hand insight into these killers, helping us to understand what makes a monster. The following is part one of an interview with Dr Richard Badcock recorded in August 2019 for Crime and Investigation's TV series Making a Monster. Dr Badcock is a consultant forensic psychiatrist whose long and esteemed career has seen him profile some of the UK's most violent and dangerous offenders, including the killer Robert Black. Caution, the subject matter of this interview contains graphic descriptions and is often very disturbing.
0: I'm a forensic psychiatrist, so my approach is very much an individual, case-focused one. And uh, it seems to be most useful where there's an issue about motive, where the motive is obscure or appears uh, wrong or doubtful in some way. so my job then is to extract as much psychological information as I can from the information that's come into the investigation, from the scene and the circumstances, and uh, from, use that to build up a picture of the, the various stages of the offence, you know, the, the planning, the initial interaction, the offence itself, whether there's been a change in the flow of the offence during the course of it, how the offence has finished, uh, what's been done afterwards... So trying to recreate um, patterns in, in what the offender has gone through in terms of planning, carrying out and leaving a case. I'm not a detective in any sense. i do well if I can remember where I left my car.
1: Scottish serial killer and paedophile Robert Black was convicted of the kidnap, rape sexual assault and murder of four young girls dying in 2016 of a heart attack while serving life imprisonment dr badcock studied black in prison
0: i was asked to see him by the uh, by the detective who'd been leading the investigation in scotland um, and who formed not not a not a close bond, but, but wanted to help Robert um, achieve peace of mind if he could. Um, so Robert agreed to the interviews. He, he was worried about them because he'd been through a previous set of interviews with a psychologist and he felt um, misused by, by that series. Um, he, he, was, he was overweight, he was shy, um, not, I think, terribly intelligent, but had a lot of what you might think of as sort of natural cunning. Um, there were areas of his life that he was quite happy to talk about, and equally areas that he wasn't. the The areas that he was happy to talk about were were things that he'd spoken about with other people. Um, the the things he didn't want to talk about very much were the were the offences. Um, one thing he did say was that um, he had no recollection of what happened to the victims in, in terms of whether they, they died or not. It was, he, he said it, it was like a, like a theatre, like the curtains opening at the start of a play. What had gone on before the curtains opened, he had no knowledge of. What happened after the curtains closed, he had no recollection of. And these were the areas when the, the girls were killed and the bodies disposed of. But he had some recollection of what happened in between. Um, and he said that the first thing he would try and do was to... Uh, uh, his term was to, to assess the capacity of the girls. And he had um, a series of little wooden pegs and dowels that he would use to, to measure the, um, the size of the vaginal area. Um, he wouldn't talk about what happened next um, and it wasn't clear whether his sexual part of the experience were, consisted largely of masturbation um, or, or whether he attempted something more directly with the victims. It was clear that the, that the assessing capacity was an important ritual part of the offence for him. So from that point of view I thought it was likely to be uh, part of a fetish. Uh, where you, you use an inanimate object as a necessary adjunct to a successful personal sexual experience. So I thought it was quite likely that for most of the time he, um, he would use the, the fetish um, to uh, bring himself to arousal and then he would have the sexual experience through masturbation. The, the aim, which we were you know, very explicit about with him, was to try and give him peace of mind and ideally bring closure to the families of the victims, you know, for the uh, information that they still lacked. And he was, um, as I say, there were areas that he would not talk about. Um, In psychiatry there's always, well, usually more than one way of skinning a cat, as it were. So by picking on areas that he was happy to talk about, which was considered in prison it was largely food, uh, he, he uh, an incentive for you know getting a meal from mcdonald 's that was that was quite important to him. The, the other thing that he was particularly proud of was his topographical knowledge, his geographical knowledge, and um, he 'd worked as a van driver um, and had driven all over the the country. It became clear in the course of our conversations that while he was carrying out his deliveries, he would Take a lot of opportunity to follow people who he felt were interesting to him, not with the, not with a view to carrying out an offense, certainly, but he, he would follow them and deviate from his planned route, uh, just follow them down side streets to see what if um, it wasn't um, he wasn 't reconnoitring for an offense I think he was uh, I think he got. Satisfaction out of just being able to follow somebody in secret um, and to feel that he had the power. Um, power is probably the right word because, in himself, he was a relatively powerless man. He was quite, he was quite whiny, um, in a sense. He was like many people who've been locked up for a long time, but also many people who. Uh, find themselves in a similar situation to Robert's, they they develop quite, um, uh, quite a capacity for whinging. They're usually more aware of themselves as being victims than the people who've been involved in the offences. And Robert was very much like that. It wasn't that he was... It wasn't that he didn't recognise that by not giving the full story he wasn't causing pain to other people, and he wasn't... He wasn't doing it in a sadistic sense to try and stop people from, you know, um, achieving satisfaction themselves. It was, it was something a bit more, a bit more personal, a bit more negative than that. It was, it, it, it might have been shame. It certainly wasn't a sense of guilt, um, the because the things that he did, he did in order to feel better in himself, um, to feel more normal. You know because he was he was a man who was who would never be picked out as somebody who would be somebody that you necessarily want to want to know or want to speak to um, he he was very un, unprepossessing physically and some of his personal habits weren't, weren't particularly attractive um, so i think his reticence was was more a sort of sense of stubbornness um, in psychology, we tend to call it anal retentiveness. Um, it was an instinctive, uh, an instinctive reaction on his part. Um, and, um, and we couldn't get through that at all. You, you usually find that people who do these extreme things don't really know why they do them themselves. You know, they'll give you an explanation Um, not in Robert's case, but, you know, they'll give you an explanation, but it's rare that that is, um, well, it's rare that it's complete, um, and it's often um, so incomplete that it's not particularly helpful. Um, The explanation that that is offered publicly, as it were, is usually one that will make the offence more reconcilable to yourself, or... or, um, or something, but, it, but it's not necessarily about all the background and the reasons why you've got to the point of carrying out those things in the first place. Um, I mean, Robert had a terrible childhood and you know, disastrous experiences, um, but um, he would never talk about his very early childhood, um, and yet his first offence that, that we know about when he was still a, a young boy. Um, was already a heavily sexualized one, you know, taking the young girl down to uh, into a uh, was it an air raid shelter? Wasn't it? And was, no, to see kittens, and then knocking her on the head, um, really being sort of quite indifferent as to whether she was killed or not, but masturbating at the scene. You now, for a young child to already be behaving in that way, clearly something has happened before then. Um, which is both abnormal and extreme and has made uh, a deep impact on his mind. But he never disclosed what that was and it was not something that we could persuade him to go back to. Um, he's quite happy to talk about the sort of deprivations and the difficulties of later childhood, the early adulthood, the... Um, the, the the loneliness, the isolation, the the feeling that people were always working against you, um, the collection of pornography, the the way in which he built it up, his pride in his pornography collection. Um, Things which sort of took his time and energy and money. Um, But he would never get himself back to where it would have really counted, which was... uh, which was something that happened in very early childhood and possibly something about which he didn't have um, a clear memory or if he did not one that could be easily articulated in words. Mainly I I think he just couldn't get his head around it and and didn't want to go back there. Um, Something that in, presumably in the form of sexual abuse but, but something which so disturbed him that um, he shut himself off from it completely, dissociated himself from it in the same way that he dissociated himself from the part of his offences involved in firstly the abduction and the killing and then the disposal of the body the only bit that he would admit to consciousness was what happened in between. Um, and even that, he, he wouldn't talk about an awful lot. But the rest of it, the two bits outside, he, he wouldn't consider at all. he dissociated himself from them.
1: While in prison, Black never admitted to any of his murders or abductions. Here, Dr. Badcock describes how Black carried out his crimes and what he considers to be the likely thought process Black would have gone through.
0: The most direct uh, understanding of that I got was from the offence he was convicted of where there was no body, um, the offence in Northern Ireland. And there we knew where where the girl had gone missing. She'd been on her bicycle, she'd been going from A to B. Um, and her bicycle was found abandoned, thrown over a hedge, at of the bend in the road. Um, and the road hadn't changed, so we were able to go back and study the topography. And you often find that topography is quite revealing in terms of, um, you know, the skill, the planning, the intent, the preparation, um, and the force of the, of, of the abduction. Here, it was clear that the point at which she had been abducted was the only one on a, a several mile stretch where for a matter of only a few seconds the, you, anything that you did on that bend would not be observed um, for a hundred or two hundred yards on either side um, Outside that, there would be either a straight road and you could be observed, or there were houses where you might be seen. But just at this bend, you you, you were safe for probably a maximum of five, ten seconds. Um, and um, and <clears throat> the and Robert, I I know would have would have sized that up for himself immediately driving along the road. He, he was very good at that. He was doing it all the time. The, um, so. It's almost certain, I think, that he stopped his van at that point, having passed the the victim as she was making her way along her route, um, stopped her, engaged her in conversation, bundled her in the van, chucked the bike over the hedge and was off. And he would have done that in under 15 seconds. Um, There was, uh, you know, speed was of the essence. And uh, I'm sure it would have been exactly the same in his other offences. He never said that he wanted to kill them. In fact, he, 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 was, quite, he was quite prudish in many ways, was Robert, um, the, and would have considered it rude to um, try and probe a victim while they were alive. But he didn't want to kill them, so he, he'd smothered them, um, in effect. But in his mind, he wasn't. He was covering them up, and then it was up to them whether they lived or died. Uh, so as far as he was concerned... He, he dealt with the, the killing aspect by really distancing himself from it. So he he put the victim in a position where it was almost impossible that he wouldn't die. In his mind, he would not have done it. But he knew that he shouldn't be doing what he was doing. What decisions had he made himself that would get him to that point? Um, I think a lot of them would be based on envy. You know, he, he, he did not feel that life had favoured him. He he was envious of other people's achievements. Why should they have things that I would do better with or I need? Um, so I, th- I think he let himself brood uh, quite a lot. The, the brooding was mixed up with fantasising, you know, because there's a degree of fantasising going on when you're following people around as a potential victim. The the fantasy, the fantasy life that he had was more satisfactory to him in many ways than the real life. It didn't mean that he wanted to kill people all the time, he didn't. The, um, and I know that at least one of the killings was, um, was really precipitated by a real life event, which upset him. Um, he was driving his van and he, um, he had a slight accident. There was a damage to one of the bumpers of the van that really, really upset him. Um, and he carried out an offence soon after that. If you, if you shut yourself away from life, um, if you allow yourself to develop more narcissistic traits than nature endowed you with, um, you gradually become more isolated, more cut-off in a world of your own. And then you don't think about consequences in the same way. Um, you, might think, you might think, well, I shouldn't be doing this, this is wrong. Um, you, might, um, you might feel ashamed of yourself afterwards, but it wouldn't be nearly as powerful as the drive to, to do something to make yourself feel better. His contact with the outside world wasn't through people, it was through pornography. Um, and pornography is all about um, stimulating um, sexual appetite in a way which disregards the victim as a person. And you know, the victim has no status in pornography except as a sexual object. Um, that was Robert's world. I was given one of his books to look at, and it was on the front cover. It was at number 101, so you knew he had a huge, huge collection. The interesting thing about this particular book was that it, the images in it, it had all been culled from magazines, but they, they weren't necessarily um, horrible sexual images. They, a lot of them were about sort of naked, smiling children, you know, health and efficiency stuff. They um, um, with a few conventional adults pictures, but the majority were of children. But they weren't of children being abused. These were of children displaying innocence. Um, And I assume that that was one of the attractions for him, is the innocence of childhood. The the thing that he must have felt had been taken away from him. Um, That, I think, was part of the envy. most of the images would be considered relatively innocent in themselves. It's... and you often find with... Um, well, I don't know would often find, but uh, again, people in Robert's position, you know, they... Um, what they're... what they're looking to possess and conquer um, isn't initially sexual experience, it's innocence, purity. Um, the, the sexual experience, sexual satisfaction, comes slightly later. It's the... Once you're on the slippery slope, you, you know all kinds of things sort of start to build up in your mind, including lust. And there's no doubt that, that Robert um, had a sense of lust. But that was not the driving force behind his offences. It was a drive that took him over. Um, He didn't want to control it. He surrendered his will to it. It was destructive, um, but made him feel powerful, um, made him feel effective, um, made made him feel better
1: They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? Right.
0: Looking at it from the outside, it's certainly clear that something really traumatic happened to him at a very early age, which he never discussed. That traumatic something then didn't by itself um, direct the rest of his life, life, because he then made decisions as a child growing up and as an adult, which added to the capacity to offend. Um, um, But it was the thing that because he could never address it or deal with it, stopped him from being able to um, develop along different lines. So he, it, it did have the effect of encouraging him to grow up feeling vulnerable, alienated, inadequate. Um, and then the fantasies were and kind of ways of trying to get round feeling vulnerable, alienated and inadequate. Um, Particularly so with the the killing that occurred after he'd had the accident with his van.
1: Fostered as an infant, Black's early life included various acts of disturbing behaviour and sexual abuse by a male staff member at his school. Dr. Badcock reveals here whether the crimes he committed in his later life were a product of what happened in his childhood and, ultimately, whether there was any hope of rehabilitation.
0: The hope was yes. Um, the, the answer was probably no um, because he felt that he was never going to be released from prison so there was no prospect of a change in his situation, um, so there was there was nothing that that he could be offered that would encourage him you know well one of the one of the effects of narcissism is that it um, you dwell entirely on what's going on inside you that 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 is your world you lose connection with the outside world with the the interactions which make human life human, hasn't it? You know, we're not, as, a, as human beings, we are not designed to live a life of isolation. We are designed to, um, to live um, a full life only if we have active relationships with other people. It's the, it's the interrelationship um, with others that gives life its meaning and people their value. There's no escaping um, the fact that it, it created a disturbed person and that that disturbance um, continued and developed into adult life in ways which then facilitated offending. It could have developed differently um, with the same level of disturbance. After all, you know, other, other people are abused and they grow up feeling disturbed, but they, but they find a different path to self-reconciliation. Robert didn't because his life was so introverted um, and he kind of escaped into narcissism and to fantasy and pornography. And he happened to find that the sexual experiences he got from that made him feel better and that that was enough for him um, as it was. He didn't want to take it any further. In all the cases I've seen, the the desire to achieve an identity is pretty much at the centre of things or to maintain an identity. Um, In ordinary life, that identity gets a kickstart in a loving family setting where you build up trust from a very early age where you're free to explore things for yourself without being um, criticised or put down for it, uh, and where you're allowed to make mistakes without without the you know the weight of the world dropping on you afterwards. Um, many people regrettably don't don't have this, so they. And my experience is that the people who grow up. Um, Curtailed as children, uh, lack imagination in adult life, and are there, thereby, more tempted to go along the lines of developing fantasy. And um, sexual fantasy is one of the commoner fantasies to to develop, because it's simply because it makes you feel better. You know, it gives you a sense of power. Uh, We all need to feel that we matter that we have influence on our environment. And some people find that they can achieve these things in fantasy when they feel they can't achieve them in real life. And the trouble is, if the fantasy draws you in, um, it, it kind of saps your will. But they, once you set your foot on that path, um, it's in, intrinsically destructive. Um, and people don't usually realise quite what a destructive effect is having on them. They remain more aware of, you know, complaints about other people, about not being properly regarded, not, having, you know, not being given the right opportunities in life. You know, fate is against me. Um, you know, what have I done to be treated in this way?
1: In the next episode of Making a Monster, the tapes... We'll have the second part of our interview with Dr. Richard Badcock, where he talks more about his career as a clinical psychiatrist. And make sure you have Making a Monster, the TV show, set to record with new episodes every Monday at 9pm. Let us know what you think. Leave a review in whichever podcast app you use or tag a post with hashtag Making a Monster on social media. You can also head to crimeinvestigation.co.uk for more information on the series and profiles on all the killers featured. Making a Monster, the Tapes, features interviews recorded by Monster Films for the Crime and Investigation TV series and was voiced by me, Cherry Healy, produced by Sam Pearson and Chloe Frost, with editing by Joel Porter.